Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week, I'm joined by South Africa's former trade and industry minister and senior figure in the South African Communist Party, Rob Davies. We discuss the impact of COVID-19 on South Africa, the deindustrialization and financialization of the South African economy, and the urgent need for a global Green New Deal in the wake of the pandemic. Last week, after our incredible episode with Cornell West, which I'd encourage everyone to go back and listen to, we hit 100,000 downloads, which is amazing after just a few months. Please do remember to rate the show if you're listening on iTunes, as that's critical to keep us up in the charts and keep the momentum going. Just scroll down and hit five stars. I also want to say a massive thank you to all our patrons. We're just £300 a month off our fundraising target now, so please do consider subscribing. All you have to do is hit pause and head over to Patreon at patreon.com slash a world to win pod. That's patreon.com slash a world to win pod. By becoming a patron, you'll get access to the full hour-long episode this week, rather than the 45-minute abridged version, and to full hour-long interviews with all our guests, including Jeremy Corbyn, Naomi Klein, and of course, Cornell West. We're also going to be selling merch soon exclusively for patrons, and providing exclusive offers on subscriptions to Tribune and my forthcoming books, The Corona Crash and Futures of Socialism. And a big thank you to the Lippmann Miliband Trust for providing us with the grant funding we've needed to bring you these first episodes. You can follow them on Twitter at Lippmann Miliband. And another big thank you to Reverend and the Makers, who have let us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram for updates, all with the handle at a world to win pod. Now, here is Rob Davies discussing the coronavirus pandemic in South Africa, which introduced one of the strictest lockdowns in the world, and how the country is going to recover after losing a fifth of its GDP. Hello, Rob Davies, and thank you so much for joining me on this week's episode of A World to Win. So as always, we're going to start the show by talking about a couple of news stories that are kind of relevant this week. And the first one is about, it's from the BBC, and it's on South Africa's pretty strict lockdown, which is just being eased as cases are dropping. So I I guess I just want to know, do you think South Africa is kind of coming through the eye of the storm on COVID? And was the early and very strict lockdown, one of the strictest in the world, the right move from the government? Well, um, yes, indeed. I think the the, the figures are are telling us that we are uh, coming down. We're also... Uh, moving steadily down the world rankings. At one stage, we were fifth in the world, and I think we'll be in the teens in, in the near future. There's probably an underestimate, as there is in many parts of the world, of the number of deaths that have been caused. I think that's a that's a concern. But uh, in in general terms, I do think that uh, it's clear that the number of cases has been receding, and the number of deaths has also been receding. The hard lockdown, well, there is a debate about whether we needed such a hard lockdown, but I do think that the lockdown did buy us the time, as uh, in the case of many other countries, to deal with uh, the backlogs in the preparedness of the health uh, system to cope with what was coming. And I also think that it reflected a very clear recognition of the importance of following the scientific advice 
and uh, you know, so we were not a country that was uh, affected by populist denialism or anything of that sort. But we do have a very, very serious economic recovery challenge that's lying ahead. Yeah, and that is the second story that I wanted to discuss with you, um, because there's a story in the FT, South Africa's economic woes, it takes us back 13 years. Now, this is a story about how real GDP has plunged by about a fifth. So that takes the country back to where it was in terms of GDP in 2007. Now, presumably, as elsewhere, this is an economic crisis that's going to be felt disproportionately by the poorest. Indeed. Uh, in fact, many of us on the, the left in South Africa, we have coined the slogan, we can't return to the crisis before the crisis. We were already in recession mm. before the COVID crisis struck. This has been the result of a number of factors, including the recent past, the state capture and corruption, which we faced. But also, I think that we have been squeezed by the demands of uh, financial institutions and the pressures uh, for austerity. And I think that uh, right now, if we don't have a, an ambitious and a recovery program that is commensurate with the damage that's been done and takes account of uh, things like um, the scarring that will be caused, which means that some of the jobs which we've lost, we lost uh, 2.2 million jobs. And to put that into, into comparison, in the global financial crisis, we lost 1 million jobs. So we've yeah. already lost more than double as many. And these are in sectors as well where I think these jobs will be permanently lost. And this comes on top of high levels of poverty, also of inequality. We are one of the highest in the, in the world. So mm. I think that uh, we're, we're in for a, a very, very challenging period. And um, I think there is a, a kind of a tension between those forces in our country which are looking for an ambitious recovery program that will take us beyond the crisis before the crisis, which will address some of the systemic uh, issues of underdevelopment that we had, that will embrace things like income grants, which will take us into a much more uh, uh, effective uh, infrastructure program addressing also social backlogs, and then the demands for as it would be put euphemistically, uh, for an early return or as uh, early as possible return to fiscal consolidation, meaning austerity, which will choke all of that off. And I think those are the, the challenges that we face as a country, which I, I think are not unique to South Africa, but are very sharply illustrated by the South African case. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you Do you think that's a danger then in South Africa, that there will be this pressure to return to austerity? And do you think that will come primarily from outside, from the bond markets? Or are there kind of internal political pressures to move towards, yeah, the, the kind of euphemism of fiscal consolidation? I think both. Uh, but uh, what we have, uh, the, the way that the, the pressures of global financialization uh, find its expression in South Africa recently has been through the rating agencies. And uh, it was actually on the day that the lockdown commenced that the last rating agency that held the South African sovereign rating into investment uh, grade downgraded us. So we've now been downgraded to below investment grade rating by all of the three major rating agencies. And I think that's one way that this uh, impresses itself on South Africa is the actions of the rating agencies, but also we have a strong and powerful financial sector 
which uh, in fact has grown remarkably. And I think it's only a, a very, very initial indication of the extent of financialization that the South African economy, along with many others, underwent. It was about 6% of GDP in 1994. And uh, by the, the middle of the last uh, decade, it was already over 20% of GDP with uh, quite strong links to uh, international finance capital and a very, very major force. The strongest of the different uh, components of capital in South Africa by far, finance capital. And of course, uh, it's also a, a major force which has echoes in constituencies that are important also in the ruling party. So it's a combination of the two, but uh, definitely there is serious pressure for us Yes, we can have a a period of time when we are not going to be bound by the fiscal numbers of neoliberalism, but they want to see a a very quick and rapid return to, uh, as the phrase goes, fiscal consolidation. Mm. And obviously, those pressures are going to be felt across the continent um, as this crisis goes on. There are a a number of countries now that are facing very severe debt distress in in sub-Saharan Africa. But also, we've got this other story from the BBC that says coronavirus age and climate seen as behind Africa's low cases. So it seems as though sub-Saharan Africa has been hit less hard than many other regions in the world by the virus itself. But on the other hand, you've got this massive economic impact. So... You know, do you think that on balance, Africa is going to look like a kind of more attractive investment destination as this crisis wears on? Or do you think that that's going to be overwhelmed? The actual low impact of the virus will be overwhelmed by the sheer kind of economic devastation. We are a country uh, which is perhaps more temperate than some of our uh, fellow African countries. Uh, And uh, that might have meant that we had a more of a winter than some of them had. And that may be a factor. But, uh, you know, as I said earlier, we were at one stage the fifth most affected country in the world. So that is not uh, anything that I think can say that uh, we've been immune uh, from the impact of COVID. Very, very far from it uh, in our own case. However, it is true that, uh, that many of the other countries on the continent have been less affected. And, um, well, I think that whether there's an increase in investment is going to depend on a whole lot of things. I think there's already uh, signs that uh, FDI is likely to decline very, very sharply if FDI was ever a, a solution to uh, problems in the first uh, instance. But I think that what we, what we do have going for us is that we have developed one very, very potentially important new program, which is the development of an African continental free trade area which would have been implemented but for the coronavirus. Uh, But the delay uh, that the coronavirus has caused is enabling us, I hope, to to rethink its relationship with industrial development and transforming the productive base of our uh, uh, countries and actually looking to the development of things like regional value chains, which can enable us to move from our colonially defined position in the global division of labor as just producers and exporters of primary products into a higher value-added productive activity. And if we can get that going, I think that would be a very major step forward for the African continent, something that will stand us uh, in a place where I'm sure that others from the outside will be looking for whatever opportunities there are, and hopefully we will be in a better position to, to shape the terms of those engagements. 
Right now we're um, going to go into the main body of the interview where we're going to talk a bit about your life, your work, your political career. Um, and I just want to start by asking you how you got involved in politics. I mean, you were obviously involved in the anti-apartheid movement and then uh, joined the Communist Party. So what led you to get involved in that struggle and what brought you into, into politics itself? I didn't come from a, a political family. So um, I, much of my childhood, I was brought up as a privileged white boy in apartheid South Africa. My father worked in insurance. My mother was a, I think the euphemism would be homemaker. And I was sent to boarding school. And um, I became politically involved when I started attending university. And I started to get involved in a, in, in a number of uh, protests against various aspects of apartheid uh, laws that were then coming into force. My politicization coincided with a period between the smashing of the ANC underground, the arrest of Mandela and the top leadership at Travonia and their incarceration. All of that had been completed by about 1963. And then in 1973, we had the resurgence of the trade union movement. So my politicization took place during that decade in which uh, student politics was kind of one of the only overt forms of opposition left in the country. And I went through different uh, phases of, of being involved in protests. I eventually got uh, excluded from university. I then found my way into doing a few illegal things for the movement, uh, producing leaflets and distributing leaflets and stuff like that. And eventually I found myself excluded from university, no longer able to study. I then, through assistance of some people around me, I, I then went to the University of Southampton for one year. And then I worked in Botswana. And then finally, I did a doctorate at the University of Sussex before spending most of my time in exile. I was in exile for, for uh, 19 years in total. And most of it I spent in Mozambique, where I was involved with the movement, but also I was uh, working at the university. And one of um, my bosses in Mozambique was um, Ruth First, the very well-known anti-apartheid campaigner who was, uh, in fact, murdered in her office in the center where I worked in 1982. And uh, my Mozambican boss, his name was Akina de Braganza, uh, he died in the plane crash with uh, Samora Michelle in 1986. So that's where I was uh, for most of the years until 1990 when the clerk unbanned us and when we came back to South Africa and I became a member of parliament in 1994 after a stint at the University of the Western Cape. I mean, that's absolutely incredible um, to have been exiled for that length of time, to have been surrounded by those comrades, many of whom sadly died, and then to return as a minister. Can you talk a little bit about how you kind of got into how you got into government um, and also the relationship between the Communist Party and the ANC, because people might be a bit confused about how you could be a minister in the ANC government while being a member of a, of a different party. Over the years uh, of uh, struggle and the um, emergence of the ANC as a substantial force, relationships were forged um, with um, the Communist Party. They date back uh, to the uh, 1920s, in fact. And so there's something called a tripartite alliance, which is the ANC, the South African Communist Party, and now the Congress of South African Trade Unions, but its predecessor in uh, earlier decades. So there's the tripartite alliance, which has been the 
driver of uh, the national liberation uh, movement. And the Communist Party sits in that with a very clear perspective that our view as the party is that while the ANC is, if you want, the broad church that represents a multi-class alliance of all the different uh, class forces which have an interest in national liberation, the SACP seeks to represent the interest particularly of the working class in a national democratic revolution, which we want to see take the most working class focused and most radical form as an eventual uh, step towards uh, a socialist future. So that's where we, we stand in this. And as far as the mechanics of electoral politics and that is concerned, the SACP has been supporting the ANC in elections and also then SACP members who are also ANC members, we are all members of the ANC as well. We are all eligible to be picked for any position as uh, ANC members, but also as understood to be uh, SACP members. And, you know, depending on the administrations and the, the leadership at various times, they sought to have some kind of balance of including people from alliance partners uh, in the, the lists that have gone uh, to parliament. So I found myself in the, in, in the national parliament uh, first in 1994. I mean, I served continuously from 25 years and I was first an MP. I chaired committees, and then I became a deputy minister, and I was a minister for 10 years uh, before I retired in May 2019. Obviously, if you've got that kind of, as you put it, the kind of broad church alliance of, of progressive forces that's trying to kind of shift South Africa onto a more you know, progressive path, you've got that alliance between, as you said, the, the communists who are seeking to represent, you know, working class people and then probably liberals and left liberals who have a different vision. I mean, that's certainly a dynamic that I recognize from, for example, um, the broad church that is the British Labour Party, but it tends to be the liberals who win out in a, in having their um, their policies and their, their strategies implemented. How successful do you think that the SACP has been in that mission of representing the South African working class? Well, I think that, um, you know, yes, our democratization and our transition took place uh, at the very same time as we had the era of hyperglobalization. So the democratic breakthrough, as we call it, occurred precisely at that time. And it wasn't an accident either. I mean, de Klerk uh, indicated, and I think he was telling the truth, that because of the collapse of the Soviet Union, he was more willing to contemplate uh, unbanning the Communist Party as well as the ANC, releasing Mandela from jail and negotiating a, a, a democratic uh, constitution. But there were many issues around particularly economic governance and economic policy that were sharply in, 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 uh, entrenched uh, in the order that came through, including constitutional principles, but also, as importantly, there was a very, very powerful process of opinion forming and strong pressure to conform to the norms of, of neoliberalism. And that really came to a head in 1996 when the government at the time adopted something called the Growth Employment and Redistribution Program called GEAR, which was a set of neoliberal macroeconomic policy adjustments, reduction of, of budget deficits. It was also 
taking uh, trade liberalization further, even than the very harsh deal that we had got from the World Trade Organization, Uruguay round uh, further. And all of this was the policy of the government for a long time and a source of huge contestation within the alliance, including COSATA and the SACP, where we're very unhappy at the introduction of, of gear. So that shaped the, the policy for, for quite a while, and it led to a level of economic growth, but rather insipid, and no real differences in levels of unemployment, poverty, and inequality was widening. And so that gave rise to a later period when the former president, Jacob Zuma, came to power. There was an apparent uh, willingness to embrace a few uh, non-orthodox policies, notably where I was placed. Uh, uh, we adopted a formal industrial policy. We adopted a trade policy stance, which was uh, that we would all, we would be willing to raise tariffs if we had the legal space to do so for the first time. We would also pursue uh, our interests much more vigorously in trade negotiations and things like that. But then that period became overwhelmed, unfortunately, by um, a vast escalation of corruption and state capture, which damaged public institutions and contributed to the crisis that we found ourselves in before the takeover by, by President Ramaphosa. And now, as I indicated earlier, I think the battle is between a recognition of the need to take various elements of transformation forward, while at the same time we also clean up the act as far as the government, the administration and corruption is concerned, but then the lurking in the background and with some support in the alliance itself, a view that we must uh, move quite quickly to embrace a form of austerity. So I think those are the sort of contradictions and struggles that we've had uh, over time. But uh, but yes, so I think we could probably point to a few progressive things that happened. Labor legislation that gives uh, quite advanced rights uh, for bargaining to working people, but coming up against a harsh reality of, of, of much outsourcing, of lower quality jobs being created, of structural unemployment at, at very high, persistently high levels, which uh, is, is, is only getting worse uh, as things like COVID have, have struck us. You mentioned earlier that um, South Africa is, on some measures, one of the most unequal countries in the world. And obviously, that's in part the legacy of that neoliberal turn that you were just talking about. Why do you think there has been so little progress towards economic injustice since the end of apartheid? And also, what did you try and do as a minister? What was your approach to trying to combat it when you were in government? Yeah, well, I think that depends on, on, on countries that calculate Gini coefficients. So our inequality is very high if we don't include, because there were some important reforms in extension of, of social grants and stuff like that, which have partly mitigated the uh, the problems that have been faced by low-income uh, communities and households. So I think that's the that's the picture. But what we have not gone through is the kind of structural transformation that is capable of building an economy that can provide stronger employment at higher quality for more people. That's the issue. So South Africa was a, a mining economy but one in which gold uh, has been a, a waning asset. South Africa used to be by far the world's largest producer of gold. I think we are now about the seventh or eighth, something like that. The best gold has already been mined out. 
And uh, with that, a lot of employment has gone. Uh, low quality employment, to be sure, but it was employment. Now, as a minister, I took very much from the school of uh, heterodox economists who argued that if you look around the world and you look at, um, for example, the the, the Human Development Index uh, of the UN, you'll find that there is a case where countries like Cuba, for example, who have invested heavily in health and education systems, have been able to make significant improvements in their rankings on the Human Development Index over their rankings on GDP per capita. But with those kind of few exceptions and then other uh, exceptions like uh, oil producers who've got massive oil rents and small populations, with those exceptions, there's a very strong correlation between countries that have got high levels of human development and countries that are industrialized. And that means that they've all passed through a phase where they have moved onto higher value-added productive activities, they've industrialized, They've used the tools of industrial policy to support, nurture, and indeed protect uh, nascent industries. They've adopted a trade policy stance, which has been to fight for your policy space as your industries are growing. And only when they become competitive are you prepared to consider uh, free trade in the areas where you are. And our quest uh, when, when I took over was to try to implement an industrial policy that made sense for South Africa and would move us along the track towards these kinds of uh, transformations. And I think that what happened was we saw some successes in some sectors, but uh, these were in the context of, first of all, the impact of the Great Recession. Then they were in the context of a weakening of many of our public institutions in the episode of state capture and corruption that we've just been through. And now uh, it's coming up against uh, uh, the COVID challenges. So I, I remain convinced that unless we can do that, not just as South Africa, but as a continent, because I think that the more successful industrializing countries in the world now, um, beginning with China, at a certain point in time, China switched dramatically to its own domestic market when it saw that the idea that you could continually expand increasing numbers of manufactured exports into the developed world were coming up against low demand and also the re-emergence of industrial policy in the developed world. When all of this became obvious to countries like China, even India, they turned to their domestic market. But they've got large populations that offer the, the potentiality for uh, a, a, a deep level of industrialization based on rising incomes in their own in their own countries. As unfortunately, colonialism divided Africa into 54 countries, which it never did in India or China. But as a continent, we start to hit the numbers that would make sense. So that's why a developmental approach to regional integration, coupled with an adoption of industrial policy, I think is the structural way forward that we need to move in. And uh, for this, we need to fight for our policy space, a developmental perspective on trade policy issues, a willingness to fight against unfair trade deals, and, and also to fight against the pressures for austerity, which will just um, uh, hold us back. There's so much in there. You've picked up on so many of my questions already. Um, so I'm going to try and, and just go through them one after the other. The first is, I suppose, a question about South Africa's role in in the capitalist world system. I mean, it's obviously 
it highly integrated into kind of the international financial system. It has, as you said, some domestic industry, but also is a is a significant commodities exporter, um, has high levels of unemployment, a large kind of what is euphemistically termed informal economy. And in many ways, it kind of remains a semi-peripheral economy. So do you think that there are still those big externally imposed barriers that face all kind of non-core economies when trying to kind of industrialize in a kind of world system that's weighted against them? Yeah, these barriers are enormous. These barriers require a very, very clear commitment on direction you need to move in. And then some very, very skillful maneuvering through very, very many pressures that are going to come across you. So, I mean, where, where I was deployed for many, many years, it was in uh, the um, trade negotiating space where the World Trade Organization had become this behemoth that was driving hyper-globalization, trade liberalization, and was foisting this, uh, you know, very, very disruptive transformations that were having very, very serious effects on developing countries. And in the case of South Africa, it was compounded by the fact that the apartheid regime, which conducted the negotiations for the entire Uruguay round, had the temerity to stand up and say that South Africa was a developed country. So we, in fact, took on the obligations which were even more onerous than those of countries like India or Brazil. So we were in that situation as South Africa, and uh, people like Harjun Chang have pointed out that we underwent uh, serious premature deindustrialization. That's what we we, we underwent uh, in the in the nineties, and so um, I think that's one uh, area. Another area is that if you are a mineral producing country and you want to add value to your minerals, which is what you need to do, because uh, if you look at any product that is produced now and you ask what is the the value of the raw material in the product it's small and becomes uh, smaller and smaller when you start to get to uh, high-tech products like a cell phone where of a 600 dollar phone the value of the raw materials in it is less than one dollar so i think those are the those are the sort of realities when you want to try to do do anything to change that you come up against enormous pressure and resistance things like the raw materials initiative the european union where uh, it sounds benign, but actually it's about uh, ensuring that countries that produce raw materials that the European Union needs or wants are not going to be withheld because of measures like demands for beneficiation or value addition before they're exported, things like that. You come up against those kinds of things. And then you come up against things that are held out. Um, You know, yes, you can get foreign investment provided that your macroeconomic environment looks appealing, provided the bankers like you and so on and so forth. But actually, there's no correlation between the two. One other thing that we did was we, during my time, we lapsed bilateral investment treaties that South Africa had negotiated and signed with a host of countries in the period uh, in the early 1990s, many of which contained huge guarantees for investors against uh, not just direct expropriation without compensation, but against uh, what's called indirect expropriation, things that would undermine uh, their expectation of profits and would allow issues like, um, for example, in the extreme case, didn't come to us, but in the extreme case, countries that wanted to introduce uh, strong health warnings on packages for tobacco products and things like that, we're, we're finding themselves taken to um, dispute uh, settlement uh, uh, panels, which had the power to 
have a say over health policy of a country. So there's a, a host of, of constraints that are there to entrench the historical division of labor, which was created by colonialism. And I think that's the, 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 the reality. Only a few countries have broken through it. Those that have broken through it, the newly industrializing economies of East Asia, most recently China, have seen that it has been industrial development that has meant that their people have been lifted out of poverty. Now, you talked a little bit there about premature deindustrialization, and that was obviously a trend in South Africa that was associated as well with financialization. South Africa is quite a highly financialized economy that is in which rentier interests have a, a huge amount of power, as you've highlighted. What kind of challenges did that create when you were trying to develop an industrial policy and just manage the economy? Well, of course, for many years, our predecessors were persuaded that, uh, you know, uh, industrial policy was anathema in the neoliberal trade, uh, in the neoliberal playbook, and that uh, you shouldn't actually have one. So we didn't have anything overtly called an industrial policy. When we started to say we were having an industrial policy, there was a huge pushback. Uh, but um, there was also a number of uh, very supportive voices that we could also pick on. And so we, we did move ahead and define an industrial policy. But um, one of the things that our predecessors were persuaded was that um, the industrial base that was there was behind high tariff walls and that um, those uh, high tariff walls were supposedly allowing rent seeking in the industrial sector itself. And so the tariffs were reduced and anybody who was objecting in the industrial sector, often they were white owned, so that was another factor that would come in. They were denigrated as, as, as rent seekers and uh, supposedly tariff cuts were going to force them to become more competitive or force a more competitive industrial sector. Well, it didn't. It led to a large loss of capacity, which uh, Ha Jun Chang, he did a paper which uh, he presented in South Africa last year, which basically showed that in the 1960s, South Africa had been probably the most significant industrial country outside of the industrialized core. And uh, we had regressed to become not a significant player. So we were at one stage much more industrialized than, well, I mean, even at that stage than South Korea, but leave them out. But we were, we were more industrialized than India, Brazil, any country like that. And that's no longer the case. So when we're talking about industrialization and the need to develop industrial strategy, which I entirely agree with you on, and indeed, you know, that's been a big subject of debate in even, you know, economies like the UK today, which have seen also this process of deindustrialization and, and financialization. The context in which you often hear this talked about today is the, a kind of, you know, the idea of a Green New Deal. And I'm just wondering what you think is needed at the environmental level to make these ambitions towards industrialization sustainable? And in particular, do you think that much faster efforts are needed on climate breakdown in the global north to make sure that there's ecological space for the global south to industrialize? Yeah, I support very uh, strongly the, the ideas behind the, the global Green New Deal. And I think that the, the two mega challenges, apart from the coronavirus uh, and probable future pandemics, is uh, the necessity imperative to uh, transform to lower carbon emitting economies. And the second one is the, uh, the fourth industrial revolution, uh, the digital industrial revolution. And I think both of those 
actually uh, raise the bar and the imperative for developing countries to industrialize. If we if we don't, we are going to just find that we are going to lose out further and further again. Now, I think that the issue in the particularly the, the, the green economy is that for us to become part of the green economy and to transform in that direction much more rapidly, we've got to be able to show our people that there are economic benefits from doing that. If it's just a cost that we have to make as part of, uh, of, 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 of good global citizenry, which I do think there is something that, that we have to do to, in, in that regard. But if, if that's the only thing that we're doing, we're not getting any economic benefits. We're not getting industries that are going to build the, the new uh, greener uh, energy transmission equipment and so on and so forth. It's not going to happen on the scale required. And so, for example, we did uh, introduce uh, things like localization of windmill towers and you know some of the other components around, uh, for example, um, solar power and transmission facilities and so on. But I think that in general terms, is that there needs to be a recognition for a much more inclusive industrialization. I was always very resistant to the idea that we needed trade rules on digital uh, products and uh, um, the digital two dozen trade rules are absolutely going to hold us back from uh, any kind of use of digital technologies for developmental purposes. So I think that the, the, the New Deal has got to allow the policy space for us to develop programs that are going to create the potentiality for us to find our niches. Otherwise, I think that this um, is going to be resisted and um, that, um, well, uh, whether we find ourselves in a position, whether this side of a post-capitalist order, we are able to make the change that's going to stop uh, catastrophic uh, climate change, I'm not sure of, because I think that you know, those parts of it that are profitable are being embraced, those parts of it that are necessary but not profitable are not, and I rather suspect we are going to be behind the curve. And even if we're not behind the curve, but we are behind the curve, there is going to be, in addition to preparing and becoming much more resilient in combating future uh, health pandemics, we are going to be facing a series of further crises caused by extreme weather events, whether it's drought, whether it's floods, or other extreme weather phenomena. That's a reality, and I think that that means that um, New Deal programs are going to have to invest in infrastructure that boosts our health services. And in South Africa, we have a, a universal healthcare program, which is called the National Health Insurance uh, 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 Scheme, which uh, has had a huge amount of resistance. But I think that we, we feel there's a moment now where we must push this thing forward energetically and decisively. But also we need to, to be building resilience to deal with the, the consequences of, of, of climate change, sea level rises and things like that as well as to make the kind of transition so that we become lower energy emitters. And as I said, I think this will happen the more we are able to see that we can benefit from the industrial development opportunities uh, that arise uh, from these transitions. Now, just before I let you go, we always end the show just by talking about kind of campaigns or struggles that are going on around the world that we want to, to bring to listeners' attention and, if possible, kind of help them find out more about those campaigns and maybe even get involved. So I'm wondering if you have any, you know, 
if you're involved in any campaigns at the moment that you would like us to publicize to for listeners to publicize and yeah if so can you talk to us a little bit about that well i mean we do we do have 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 various campaigns going on i mean in south africa i don't know how your listeners would relate to them but there's one right now and the uh, communist party has taken up um, a campaign which we call in uh, triple h plus w which uh, the Triple H goes back to uh, Chris Harney, who was assassinated in 1993, who was the general secretary of uh, the party at that, that point. And it's, uh, it's, it's health, housing, and hunger. And it's to emphasize those issues. The W then is water. So that campaign is going on in, in, in South Africa. But I think that the big challenge that, that internationally is what I was uh, uh, moving to suggest earlier that um, something like the Global Green New Deal in the different ways it's, it's articulated, but particular way it's articulated in some of the, the, the work that's coming out of UNTAD and other bodies like that, I think does offer us the possibility of campaigning for changes in the multilateral and the global environment um, I think that if we were able to, you know, have a, a broad front which is demanding that the response to the COVID crisis, the economic dimensions and the social dimensions of the crisis, uh, as well as the health dimensions, are going to be different to the way that we saw the response to the, the Great Recession a decade ago. If we can mount a, a front around that, I think that would be something that is uh, extremely important because I am uh, very much convinced that um, we, whether we like it or not, during the, uh, the period of hyper-globalization, our destinies became more intertwined and that um, there's a limitation uh, to what can be achieved in one country and what can be achieved in one small semi-peripheral country outside uh, of a transformation at the global level. I couldn't agree more. And that is indeed what this podcast is all about. Thank you so much, Rob Davis, for joining me. This was a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much, Grace.